This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 14, Emma of England again. episode, we saw the reign of Ethelred through a different set of eyes, his second wife's, Emma. On today's episode, we pick up our story in London. Ethelred has just been buried and the kingdom grieves, though they have one last shining star in Edmund. Emma is locked away in the center of the city and is powerless against the forces pushing in on her. Her children are safe in Normandy, however, she understands her situation. If Edmund is king, she will most likely be cast aside into a convent to live out her days in quiet piety. If the invader Canute becomes king, it could be this, or it could quite literally be her head. With such bleak outcomes, it's curious that she stays in England. She had a third option, though. If she retreated to Normandy, it was a certainty that she would find herself in a convent. Emma wasn't made for a convent. Emma is a survivor. So join me as we continue this fascinating look at the first fall of Anglo-Saxon England through the perspective of one of its most enduring and fascinating characters. Today, we see Emma survive the transition from Anglo-Saxon to Danish rulership. I hope you enjoy the show. Inside the city walls, London hosted vast stretches of land with which to continue letting their cows, horses, sheep, and pigs graze. Community and private gardens still bloomed fruits and sprouted tubers and vegetables with which to feed the stout London populace. They had fresh water sources flowing in and out of the city, and normally Londoners enjoyed the geography along the mighty Thames as well as the roads that thoroughfared the city, making it an up-and-coming center of trade and culture. There was a reason why royalty chose to keep returning to its strong walls year after year for a spell. However, in the spring of 1016, London saw a marked change in the number of carts and traders flowing in and out of its gates. In fact, something much darker was afoot. They were certainly happy to welcome the king and his retinue, but the king had just died and his Norman wife is left behind. Not even the great Edmund Ironside, one of only two surviving sons of the king's first marriage, stayed to help protect its walls. He went southwest to garner more troops and support and supplies to help defend the kingdom against the latest Danish horde of Vikings. London was alone. And London was running out of staple food products. Grains weren't grown within London's walls, and it was no longer flowing into its markets due to the Danish scourge. At first, Londoners switched from using grains for porridge to using it to bake bread, which lasts longer than keeping stockpiles of grain around. For close to six months, Londoners increasingly became worried. But to their credit, for close to six months, 
Canute or one of his men, never stepped foot inside London's walls. Londoners held their own. From periodic assaults against its wooden gates to Vikings sneaking up the sides of the stone walls, they simply never gained access to the city. There was a brief respite and moment of celebration when their rightful warrior king stormed Canute's forces and drove them back to their boats where those mangy sea wolves belonged. But as they have since 793, the raiders always returned. They held their collective breath for almost half of a year, praying that Edmund would once and for all achieve the heights of the great Alfred. But in late October, they heard the unspeakable. Edmund was forced to accept a deal with Canute. Edmund would hold his ancestral kingdom of Wessex. Many Londoners no doubt momentarily believed they were saved, believing that their king negotiated for London. However, their hopes were quickly dashed, as brutally as waves crashing against the majestic cliffs of Dover. Canute controlled London. London no doubt fell into a deep depression. They just embarrassed their Viking invaders for months. In fact, years if you count all the times they held out against Swain Forkbeard's forces in the previous decade. No one stands against Vikings and lives to tell the tale, unless you're from London. Running out of food and the will to continue the fight, they were forced to open their gates, in essence, allowing the Danes to enter, their one last victory of the Danish conquest over them. And the terms were unbearable. Nearly two pounds per resident were required to buy their freedom, essentially. When news of Edmund's death arrived, men could only lower their eyes to the ground, and women cried openly in the streets. All was, a, was now officially lost. And their last remaining vestige of non-Danish rule, Emma, was already a personal prisoner of Canute's. She'd been locked in the royal palace now for over a month. In fact, it occurred to them that no one had seen or heard from her since the first Danish boot stepped foot inside the walls. In fact, this imprisonment would continue for months, as Canute, as we've mentioned on the podcast already, was busy maneuvering new earls into positions that would solidify his rule. Earls, by the way, being the new word for elderman, which comes from the Scandinavian word jarl or jarl, which was pretty much an elderman. As the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles mentioned, it wasn't until August of 1017 that Canute summoned his royal prisoner. Being a prisoner of such stature, she had no choice. She was to accept his hand in marriage and become, again, the Queen of England. The only thing that made this arrangement bearable, the only thing, was that her children were safe in Normandy under the care of her brother, Duke Richard II, an ally of the Danish throne. It was no secret of Canute's intentions in his first year being on the throne of England. Ethelstan died in 1014, Edmund died in 1016, and Edwig, the king of the Churls, was dispatched mysteriously in 1017, that very year. Had Edward, Alfred, and Godkifu, Emma's children with Ethelred, been in the country, she could rest assured they would be rooted out and slaughtered as well. Emma's forethought in getting them out of England when she did would hold major consequences in the coming decades, 
but let's not get ahead of ourselves here. But Emma was a player in this grand game, so it's not like she just lowered her head and dealt with it. She had terms of her own, you know. Canute was still married. Yeah, a few years earlier, if you remember, the Elderman of Northumbria married his daughter to Prince Canute of Denmark as a way to glue the two noble families together. That was orchestrated by Swain Forkbeard. Her name was Elfgifu, and Emma, after a decade and a half in England, has quietly picked up the clever nuance of influence, the very influence that Edric Striona welded during the same time period with Ethelred. But Edric, she thought, Edric was a fool. Hubris haunts all who seek power, like a shadow created by the light of the king. Edric was impatient. Edric wasn't playing the long game. Emma? Emma learned to play the long game. And knowing about Canute's first wife, she knew in the long term that Elfgifu and her sons, Harold and Swain, were a potential threat. In order for this to work, this marriage between Emma and Canute, something had to be done about his current wife. Canute unofficially backtracked on his marriage with Elfgifu and denied his son's royal claims to the thrones of England and Denmark. Instead, he sent them away quietly. We won't hear from them for several more years, but the fact that we do hear from them again, and especially considering how he utilizes them, we can rest assured that they are certainly not wanting for much during this time period. Simultaneously, rumors sprang up throughout England that the boys, Harold and Swain, weren't even Canutes to begin with. You know, many suspected Emma to be behind these rumors, but no proof has ever surfaced of this. Regardless, Emma got what Emma wanted. One, she retained the lands and the properties and wealth that Ethelred had legally bestowed upon her. Two, again, her two boys were safe with her brother across the channel. And three, and for a medieval woman arguably most importantly, her sons that she would have with Canute would have a more legitimate claim to the thrones of England and Denmark than all others. At current headcount, there are Edward, Godkifu, Alfred, from her marriage with Ethelred, and Harold and Swain, from his marriage to Elfgifu of Northumbria. And between 1017 and 1020, Emma would give birth to two more children to Canute, Hartha Canute and Gunhilda. I do not share these names with the intent of muddying the waters, but part of Emma's crucial role is how she navigates, quite masterfully at times, her world, which includes her children. That is to say, Emma makes things happen for herself. Where Edric might have been a snake in the grass, hidden until he strikes, Emma was like water, flowing in and around every obstacle in her path. And Emma, like water, knows only one direction. Forward. So all that is certainly impressive, but was she actually a player in Canute's court? Did she earn his trust enough to be of use to Canute other than for bearing him heirs? Well, one piece of evidence that we have might point to an answer. Remember the fiery Archbishop Wolfston? A surviving missive thanks both Canute and Emma for helping get Archbishop Ethelnoth to take Archbishop Lifing's place 
as Archbishop of Canterbury. Lifing had just passed away. The highest ecclesiastic position in the kingdom, by the way. In addition to her mention in a formal letter of thanks, which didn't really happen in the 11th century, Canute surprisingly funded the reconstruction of the recently burned Cathedral of Schott in 1020, no doubt spurred on by advance from his Norman queen. I have no doubt in my mind that she knew the significance of such a move on the European stage, let alone in the eyes of her, of her brother. And finally, it is all too possible that the relationship between Canute and London, which was just as strained as it had always been, was, um, was worsened a bit, probably, by Emma's counsel, but with better outcomes. See, without notice in the records, we find that in 1023, the body of the martyred Elphea, who was brutally beaten with the bones of a cow under Thorkel the Tall's protection back in the early days of Swain's invasion, if you remember, well, the body was suddenly moved from London, where it enjoyed a unique prestige pilgrimage place representative of anti-Danish feelings still floating through the city. It was moved to Canterbury, who also wasn't much of a safe haven for Canute either. But Canute chose to enrich Canterbury, both with wealth and prestige, while stripping London of its symbol of rebellion. It was a clever move, but it was a gigantic gamble that eventually did the trick. In addition to that same year, in 1023, Canute also issued the church in Canterbury, the Port of Sandwich, one of the busiest ports in all of England, which more or less brought the loyalty of the church as a whole. Though Canute was a part of the Ocean's Eleven-type heist of the martyr's body, Emma joined them in Rochester and traveled with the entourage the rest of the way to Canterbury. She witnessed Elphea's reinterment and might have also, somewhere on, his, on this journey with her husband, witnessed the origin of the legend concerning King Canute and the Tide, which smacks of pious propaganda of the highest skill. The legend, first mentioned in the 12th century by Henry Huntingdon, says the king wasn't believed by his courtiers when he claimed that he did not have divine powers, so he decided to prove it. He ordered his throne moved to the sandy beach, where the waves lapped the shore. He sat upon it, explaining that though people think he can control all, he cannot, because there is no equal to God. He ordered the tide to stop and not to get his feet wet. But the tide? The tide rose anyway. He ordered it again, and the waves yet again ignored his orders. The high point of the story is when Canute declares after the failed experiment, quote, let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but he whom heaven, earth, and sea obey by eternal laws. End quote. From here it is said he donated his crown to Christ Church in Canterbury and never wore a crown again. With the church content and building wealth and influence, London cowed for the time being a wife who's proving far more useful than a provider of heirs, in an empire of Denmark and England, as well as familial ties with Normandy through Emma and the Holy Roman Empire through his young, daughter's being prom or his young daughter being promised in marriage to the future Emperor Conrad, well, Canute had reached a level of influence and legitimacy never experienced in either Denmark or England, 
He had an heir in Hartha Canute and a wealthy home in England, all by the age of about 29 years old. One has to wonder how smooth of a transition it would have been had Canute not seen value in Emma of Normandy, former Queen of England. We saw in previous episodes how his reign began. It was a bloodbath, to be honest. I mean, he cleaned house, including the very powerful Edric Strayona. Only two main Anglo-Saxon families even survived the purge as far as we're told, Leofric and Godwin. More on them later. Though Canute was certainly a born leader, a man with cunning and courage and envious good looks, Emma grew into her roles masterfully. They were a powerhouse couple, no doubt. And England enjoyed a a medieval version of the Roaring Twenties for much of the 1020s, you know, minus the Charleston, the Jazz, and the Harlem Renaissance, that is. But booming either way you look at it. Canute confidently and deftly sat atop a thriving empire of largely Scandinavian lands, controlling, you know, at least half of the entire North Sea. His home was in some of the more fertile and productive lands on the continent, and he was secure. I mean, there was still that issue of his not-ex-wife and his two not-sons in Northumbria, but all in all, things were good. But Emma can tell something still missing in Canute. If we haven't learned yet, we will soon see in abundance how much the Scandinavian people yearned for legitimacy in the larger European court of opinion. Canute still feels like an outsider, even though there are signs of his acceptance popping up everywhere, it seems. Canute decides to make a pilgrimage to Rome. Now, pilgrimages to Rome were hardly unheard of. Many rulers for the last few hundred years have made the journey. But the timing is what makes this particular pilgrimage a brow raiser. It would coincide with the crowning of Conrad II of the Holy Roman Empire. So Canute was definitely using the piety of such an adventure to get him close enough to the major leaders of Europe, who are assuredly going to be there, as well as the church, to rub some elbows and share a drink and a meal. He wrote a letter to his people while on pilgrimage in 1027. I spoke, he says, with the emperor himself and the Lord Pope and the princes there about the needs of all people of my entire realm both English and Danes, that juster law and securer peace might be granted to them on the road to Rome, and that they should not be straitened by so many barriers to them on the road and harassed by unjust tolls. And the emperor agreed, and likewise King Rudolf, who governs most of the same tolls. Now, quick side note, King Rudolf is the king of Burgundy at the time, but... He will pop up later. Now, in this letter, Canute implies that something that doesn't have much historical purchase, the idea that English and Danes have a tough time crossing the continent for trade or adventure or whatever, pilgrimage, but he claims to have officially secured safe passage for all citizens of his kingdoms, a monumental achievement for a man who was just a decade earlier widely seen as nothing more than a Viking beast upsetting the hierarchy of European politics. In that same letter, Canute pledges to return to England by way of Denmark. There was peace to procure, no doubt spurred by his new acceptance with with Emperor Conrad II, whose Holy Roman Empire cozied up to Denmark's southern borders. 
but there was also the threat of Sweden across the Straits that needed negotiated. He promised to return to England as soon as this peace was established, and Canute would return to England in 1028 or 1029 to quite a mess in the western part of his kingdoms. For instance, a small fire was raging on his northern borders with the Kingdom of Alba, which is a precursor to Scotland. Northumbrians were being harassed by the northern neighbors, so Canute immediately set off and quickly attained the allegiance of the King of the Scots, Malcolm, as well as two other lower kings, Aedemark and Macbethod Macfinlick, or as he has been known the world over for roughly 400 years now, thanks to a mysterious English bard, Macbeth. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on the first half of the marriage between Emma and Canute. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast. Or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I update these pages weekly and I would love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. Shortly thereafter, he would also return to his wife. After subduing the kingdoms in the north, Canute would rest a brief spell with his wife, Emma, the woman who had helped him master the politics of this adopted land. And her role is not finished either. And neither is Canute's. There's plenty left in each of their stories, however, there are things happening by 1030 to the far south that are too important to overlook. I promise we will return to Canute's final days, but there's an entire continent of activity to experience. It's easy, especially in the Anglophone world, to see only the English side of things. But England formed in the same soup as everyone else, and it's important to see how all the threads tie together. One purpose of this show is simply to learn, to dig deeper than schooling ever allows, and to understand my heritage in much more detail than I currently do. I am a direct product of the Saxons, the Angles, the Danish, the Normans, and the Norwegians of my ancestry. But I also understand that I am a product of these peoples precisely because they were a product of everyone who came before them, as well as the events and people of each age, even a continent away. The threads of human history are not separated and bound in place like strings on a guitar. Rather, they intertwine and crisscross in a never-ending knot. What Canute does next, as well as the people and the events of the rest of the century, will be dictated precisely by what is happening beyond the North Sea region. So, let's make like Canute and take a pilgrimage of our own. On the next episode, let's see how some of our Norman friends cure their boredom of European noble life and hearken back to the days of their ancestors. Ancestors like Rollo the Walker. I can't wait to tell you about it. <laughs>